When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, book lovers. I'm Charlie Gibson. Good to have you with us for another episode of The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. I'm Kate Gibson. I am his daughter slash co-host. Well, we have today a wonderful author, much honored, who happens to be your neighbor, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you the story of how I came across this author. I used to work at Twin Cities PBS. I used to do sort of small writing presentations on this local show on Friday nights called Almanac. And it's a really small, sweet local show. It's been around forever. And this author would come on every time she had a new book. This blonde-haired, sort of short, diminutive woman would come on with sort of a high voice, and she would talk about her book. And I would go, oh, that's nice that the you know local author gets time on the local TV show and whatever. And I said something to the executive producer, and he's like, do you understand she's like a really big deal? And I went and I bought The Tale of Despero the next day, and I read it to my daughter. And at that point, I was a bona fide, true blue Kate DiCamillo fan. I'm a huge fan. I've now read almost everything of hers, and I was so excited to talk to her. If her bibliography and the name of all her books was printed in the front of her books, I think they'd sometimes be longer than the books themselves, because she has written so many wonderful books, primarily uh, aimed for children. And she has been, well, she has enough awards that you'd have to have 50 fireplaces in her house to put all the (laughs) awards on the mantles. She has won, well, the Newbery Award, which is the biggest deal, I guess, in children's literature. She's won it twice and deservedly so. She has a new book out now. It is called The Puppets of Spellhorst, which I think will be the beginning of a series. And also there is the re- release of The Tale of Despero, which is probably her most famous book. And I love the idea. It's about a tiny little mouse who falls in love with a human princess. And, and his love is somewhat requited, actually. She likes this mouse and they come to have a relationship. Uh, and it's and there are dark parts of the novel. But she says, and I think you'll hear in our conversation with her, that kids need to have dark parts in their novels, that they have dark parts in their lives. And to see that you that those can be resolved happily is important. Yeah, she can do both the talking animals and the magic and the reality and the day-to-day life. She does both of those very well. She's a transcendent writer. And I think she has written modern classics. I think that 100 years from now, parents will still be reading their kids The Tale of Despero. And by the way, if you haven't read The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, which is about a porcelain bunny that is loved and is sort of snotty and is is the toy of a very well-to-do rich girl. And, and he gets lost. And it's about his heart opening up and finding love. She really captures the bittersweet nature, I think, of childhood. She started writing for children when she was working in a book warehouse, I think she says, and found that she was reading children's books and wanted to be a writer and found that as she began to do this, that she had a real talent for it. And the important thing she says is story. And she's written with this new release, uh, the 20th anniversary of The Tale of Despero. She wrote an essay for the Washington Post, I think, that was published just a couple of days ago. And she says, this is what happens with stories. 
Our hearts find each other, our broken hearts, our worried hearts, our loving hearts, our hopeful hearts. We take comfort in each other and we form a community. This is the thing she says I cannot get over. Somehow in the telling of a story, a light gets passed back and forth from reader to writer. We each get to hold the light for the other. We take turns. And light is a really important part of Despero. She makes a wonderful case for what she does for a living, and she does it very, very well. Our amazing conversation with the incredibly prolific, incredibly talented KT Camilla. KT Camilla, we are so excited to have you on the bookcase. I've read a lot of your work. The most recent that I read, The Puppets of Spellhurst, says on the front, a Norin detail. Mm. Where is Norandy? Tell me a little bit about Norandy and where that word came from. And whether there will be more Norandy books coming. It sure sounds (laughs) as if there will. There will be more. That's the easy one. Where did the word come from? Well, you know, I'm going to answer that question and no one's asked it up to this point and it will be fun to answer it. I'm a big fan of Isaac Dennison, Seven Gothic Tales. There's a story called The Deluge at... Um, a word that I cannot say that I always said to myself <laughs> as Norendi. And so I took it because it seemed magical to me. So I just made it that way. Where is Norendi? Anywhere, everywhere, out of the corner of your eye, squint and you see it, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and the puppets, as referenced in the title, there are five, a king, a boy, a girl, a wolf, and an owl. Correct. Each seems to have a particular element to their character. Give me a one-sentence description of each. The king <laughs> the king feels that he is a king. And that, you know, one of my favorite lines that comes out of his mouth is, I command something to happen. And that kind of <laughs> sums up kingdom to me. So, and the owl has caught wind of the fact that owls are supposed to be wise and so utters a lot of really ridiculous things that aren't wise, but portentous. The owl is portentous. Yeah. I'm not doing this in one line, am I? The girl and the boy are a little less heavy handed than the king and the owl. They search for meaning and story and connection. And the wolf (laughs) <laughs> the wolf has very sharp teeth sharp yeah. teeth he does and, and he repeats does. it endlessly my teeth are well and truly sharp reminding herself of who she is and trying to remind <laughs> everybody else of who she is and doesn't realize or doesn't really think that there's much purpose in living if you don't have sharp teeth. Correct. That's the way you get through life. Yes. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit, if you could, about how you're going about picking the illustrators for these different tales. Is it terrifying? Is it terrifying to have your work translated into illustrations or is it exciting? Like when you open the envelope, do you go, oh, I'm so excited? Or do you go, oh, God, uh." like, is it, you know, is it a positive or negative experience? It's definitely positive because, you know, there's just, and not to sound disingenuous, but there's always a part of me that's like, I can't believe that I get to do this. (laughs) I can't believe that I get to do this for a living. And I can't believe that I get to write a story and that somebody's going to illustrate it. So it's always just a sense of wonder. There is a thing that happens where, you know, 
I ask this in front of audiences a lot. Like when you read a book, how many of you see it unfold in your head? And it like literally it is what the science shows us. It's like 70% of the room will raise its hand. So I have that when I write, I see it. So then when somebody else brings their vision to it, a lot of times it's a surprise because it's not what I was seeing. And then their vision replaces what was in my head. There are a couple of times where artists have made art that was what I saw. That happened with Edward Tulane, Mm. and it made the hair on my arm stand up. Mm. It happened with Sophie Blackwell when she did uh, Beatrice Prophecy, and it's happened here with Julie Morstead. That's really interesting. I do that. I picture books, and yet there's many times I don't want to go see the movie because I have such a vision in my head. Like so many authors that we have had the pleasure of talking with, I gather that you always knew you wanted to write, that that was just sort of part of your DNA. Why eventually did you decide to write for children? We'll unpack that first thing because I was always a reader. And and I say this to kids when I go out and talk to them, that uh, when I was growing up, we didn't do creative writing in school. We learned how to write an essay. And I never met a writer of a book. I thought books were the most magical things in the world. I didn't think that human beings had anything to do with it. If somebody had walked in and told me that they had written a book and talked to me about it, I might have gotten it in my head. But for whatever reason, I just thought that's not something that human beings do. And it wasn't until I got to college that I really... And where I majored in English and, you know, the adults kept on saying, what are you going to do with an English degree? And I'm just like, don't ask me these ridiculous questions. (laughs) And, and, And a professor said to me, you have a certain facility with words, you should consider graduate school. And because I was so young and full of myself, I thought he was saying, you're the next Flannery O'Connor. You know, and uh, which, of course, he he didn't even he said nothing like that. But I thought, why should I bother with graduate school? I'll just go off and be a writer. So that was when the idea really took hold. And then I spent 10 years dreaming about it and not doing it. And when I sat down to start to do it, I started with short stories and sent them to literary journals. But in the meantime, I had moved here. It all kind of like coalesced at the same time. And this is that thing that we were saying earlier about how you can look back and you can see patterns from this vantage point of being, you know, almost 60. And here in Minneapolis, I got a job in a book warehouse called The Bookman, and I was assigned to the third floor. And the third floor was all children's books. And my job was pick the books off the shelves. I was a picker and entered into that job with a bias that I think a lot of adult readers have, which is, you know, oh, children's books, duckies and bunnies. But I started to read and I fell in love and I thought I want to try to do this. So there, I I don't have a short answer anywhere in my arsenal, I guess, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Where does it, I mean, but where, I mean, you are an incredibly prolific writer. You have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of books in print. Where does it start for you? Does it start with a character? Does it start with a place? Does it start with a lesson you want to teach to kids? What is the germ that grows? In your multiple choice, the lesson one, we can just like scratch that right off because I would fail miserably if I tried to teach anybody anything. And where does it start? It starts sometimes with an image. 
sometimes with a word that I have misunderstood, sometimes say Narendi with a word that I cannot say and I make it my own. I keep a notebook where I just jot down things that I overhear and things that I think um, might turn into stories. And I transfer those sparks from notebook to notebook. And it takes a long time, but a lot of those things will end up here and there. And I find that certain of them, they'll connect into a story. So... But there is, I think, always an important lesson in everything that I've read that you've written. And I've read a lot. <laughs> and I'm I, one line sticks in my head about loved and lost, loved and lost, the ever-repeating story of the world. Mm -hmm. Your stories always seem to feature loss and loneliness and longing for love. I read in The New Yorker, interesting profile, brand new, that you had a tough upbringing. So is all of that born of experience? That feeling of loved and lost and, and the that that is the ever repeating story of the world. It is, but it's it's not that uh, surely how, you know, that those early childhood experiences shaped me. But I think that's part of being human, isn't it? It's true for all of us. There's a, a moment in Louisiana's way home when Louisiana's her grandmother's saying something about the heartbroken and Louisiana says, but isn't that all of us? And in you know, one way or another, we, we all are. And, you know, back to the whatever truisms are in the book. And we just want to go down on record as saying that the books are smarter than I am. And the story is smarter than I am. And writing the story changes me. And I think that in that New Yorker piece, which I have read, it took me a while, <laughs> um, you know, but I, I, I loved Casey Sepp so much and I honored her so much that I wanted, I promised her I would read it. Tracy Bailey, my best friend that I grew up with, says, I think that therapy changed her, but I think writing the stories changed her. And so the, mm, all those mm. lessons or wisdom or whatever, that's what the stories have given to me, not me knowing anything. Well, your stories do have certain values always inculcated in them. And you write another quote, uh, stories that are not pretty have a certain value. <laughs> Everything cannot always be sweetness and light. But in your books, I always find a measure of redemption in your work. Are you an optimist about life? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> why are we here, Kate? Why, why are we here? Um, am I an uh, optimist? I, you know, I think that I think I, I think the best. This is somebody that I worked with at the Bookman who called me this, and I think it is the most accurate description of me. I am a perky curmudgeon is what he said. So. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit to your artistic process because I've read a whole lot of your work. You have some historical fiction. You've got fairy tales. You've got magic. You got this. So I'm interested in, you know, in Despero, you break the fourth wall. So I'm sort of interested in once you decide what you're going to write, how do you decide on a narrative voice? How do you match the narrative voice to the tale? This is a case in point. There's a thing that I know that I, a story that I know that I want to tell. I have all the elements and I've been doing this long enough to know that there's something there and I, and that I'm not getting it. All of which is to say nothing happens until the voice comes and each story mm -hmm. has a voice. And with Despero in particular, I had the basic outlines and it wasn't until that intrusive narrator showed up that I could tell the story. Yeah. Huh. 
How did you decide on that intrusive narrator? Because that narrator is unique in your work. Again, to say that I decided is just, <laughs> <laughs> it was is to give you credit. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes me think of Bruce Springsteen, a, a line from, you know, these days I'm doing okay, except I can't tell my courage from my desperation. I was, I was, I was filled with despair. I couldn't make it work. And that voice showed up and it sounded like it knew what it was talking about. And so that (laughs) voice that gets the reader through a hard story also got the writer through a hard story. I always wonder what an author can say to themselves, if that's all I ever write, I'm satisfied with my body of work. In Kate DiCamillo's world, does she have to keep writing or can you say, I've done well to yourself? I make sense of the world and myself through telling stories. And so if you push me, I will say, pleased and amazed with what I have been able to do, but I don't know how to be in the world without trying to tell a story. So it's that <laughs> y'all watch Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a group of friends where we just, we just move through. I mean, we've already done it. We're doing it again. And Roy Kent was talking about how we were talking about how it, it's like when he couldn't play anymore and how I, I just felt for him um, and thought, what's it like to have this thing that you can do? And then there's only a limited amount of time that you can do it. And I just, I feel like I've found the thing that I'm supposed to do. So we talked to Ann Patchett. I know you guys have a, a mutual love affair, <laughs> which I love. We talked to Ann Patchett when Tom Lake came out and she talked to us a little bit about the fact that she's gotten to know her process after so mm-hmm. many books. She's like, look, after page 20, I want to kill myself. After page 60, I think it's the best thing I've ever read. After page 120, I say, why do I do this for a living? Do you know that you have a cycle when you're writing and how do you get yourself through those moments when you're like, why do I do this for a living again? Yeah. You know, I have woken up in a cold sweat sometimes thinking, thinking, why did I, I, I'm never going to do this again, you know, with the really (laughs) difficult ones. All I know is, you know, that I've lived through it before and I'll probably live through it again. That's what you learn from one novel to the next. And the most positive thought I ever have as I'm working is, this would be a really good story if somebody else was telling it. But oh well, <laughs> here I am, and and it's what it's what I've been given. So let me try to honor it and tell it right. It's always terrifying for me, but deeply satisfying too. Thank you so much, by the way, for being on the show, Katie Camilla. The Puppets of Spell Horse were such big fans, and go read it and read it to your kids or read it to yourself. Ah, yeah. it was a thrill to talk with y'all. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, 
talk to one of them, they stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Rapid fire questions for KT Camilla. Where do you keep your 473 rejection letters now? (laughs) (laughs) They, uh, you know, some of them actually there's a, well, I shouldn't say this, but a lot of the old stories and a lot of the rejection letters are are in this big chest upstairs in my room. So I should actually (laughs) just take that all to the shredder. You've had such success in the 21st century. What was the date of the last rejection letter? That's interesting. Must have been a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That would have been um that would have been a, a long time ago. It would have been 1998. Although, you know, there have been times when I've sent things to my agent and she has said, "Let's just put this in the drawer for a while." <laughs> so that's that doesn't have a date on it, but that's a rejection. So you type the words the end. What do you do? Do you have a finishing ritual? I'll admit it. I'm moved. I'm weeping as I type those words. And then I will get up and I will walk out the door. And a lot of times as I walk, I will say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Is that a ritual? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Your favorite magical creature from literature that that you didn't write? Well, I feel as if he's very magical, although he's not magical, you know, in a magic kind of way. Paddington. Oh, Mm. oh. I mean, Mm. I just, I head over heels for those books as a kid. Have you ever attempted to illustrate one of your own books? (laughs) (laughs) That should serve as my rapid fire answer. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Is there an author that you will read simply because they wrote it? There are authors that I trust to never fail me and Patchett being one of them. Favorite book to read aloud to kids that isn't yours? I love for picture book right now. I'm just besotted with Sophie Blackle's farmhouse. It is a stunner. It never, ever gets old reading Charlotte's Web. For sure. I reread Charlotte's Web every year because E.B. White, I am always amazed. These are the same words I have access to. Why does, how how does he make them matter more, you know? And I'm always trying to figure that out. And I mean, for E.B. White, I feel like his heart is behind every word. So it goes down. I I don't know. Yeah. So I do a lot of rereading of children's literature to try to figure out how people did it. Our conversation with Katie Camilla, one of the things that really stays with me, I think the authors that write for children that I admire most are the authors that don't underestimate kids in any way, shape or form. And in all of her books, she really hands kids very adult themes. Despero specifically is about 
and I only feel like I realized this like last year and I'm 47 years old. You know, you always feel like forgiveness is a gift that you give the person who's asking for it. It's something that you grant them. And in adulthood, I realized forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves, that sometimes you cannot be healthy until you forgive others, uh, even if they haven't asked for it. That's a really adult concept. And like I say, I realized it, I don't know, last week. And she puts it in, and she puts it in this book for kids to start digesting. And to me, that's incredible. Kate was the one who suggested we talk to Kate DiCamillo because, as she told us, she's a neighbor and she was on that local almanac program on Minnesota Public Television. But when I went back and read her books, and I've now read five of them, I remembered, I thought I knew her name, uh, and then I remembered that Ann Patchett, in her wonderful book of essays called These Precious Days, wrote sort of a an homage to Kate DiCamillo. And one of the things she wrote, which I thought was really wonderful, she read all of Kate DiCamillo's books, and she said, it makes no difference what age they're written for. I felt, in reading them, like I had found a magic portal, and all I'd had to do to pass through was believe that I wasn't too big to fit. What a nice tribute. It's, it's If you haven't read Kate DiCamillo, even if you are, are not a caregiver or have kids of your own, I recommend that you read them anyway. They, they break you mm-hmm. apart and put you back together. They're just, they're beautiful books. And as I mentioned, she is a neighbor of mine. So we wanted to do an independent bookseller that represented the Twin Cities with a plum. So we reached out to Majors and Quinn, one of the bigger independent booksellers in the Twin Cities, and we talked to Annie Metcalf, their head of events and marketing coordinator. And so here she is, our conversation with Annie Metcalf. Annie Metcalf, it is so great to have you in the bookcase from Majors and Quinn. You are like the household name in independent books in the Twin Cities. Give me a little bit of a postage stamp, if you could, on your history. Yeah, absolutely. Majors and Quinn started as a used bookstore in 1994. We actually opened during the Uptown Art Fair, which is, if you are in Minneapolis, you know the Uptown Art Fair. It's a destination every summer. So we opened in August of 1994. And then over the years, took on other types of books. So we also now have a very large collection of rare and out of print and collectible books. We also carry what's known as remainders and hurts. So, you know, books that are not quite new and also not used. And of course, we added new books on about 10, 12 years ago. And we do events. We've been doing events for about that long as well. So we are your one-stop shop for kind of all kinds of books, all kinds of price points. How did you guys get into the event business? Because now you guys are really known as as a very hot spot. Like there are any writer who comes through the Twin Cities has a relationship with Majors and Quinn. So when did you get into the events business and how did you establish that rep? I will say our location is a, a boon. We're right in the middle of the city and our square footage. We are a large bookstore. So it is really easy for us to open the store to events, keep it open to the public during events. And we are a wonderful bookstore to browse in. Authors always really just want to do an event in the store that they had previously been a customer at, had browsed in. And the Twin Cities is so fortunate to have so many writers, you know, people who become published authors or are working at our colleges and universities. And so there are so many people out there who had come <laughs> to us, you know, as a, a younger person or as a soon to be published writer who now have the opportunity. So it's kind of just been a, a building block over the past 
almost 15 years, I would say. And yeah, we're very fortunate. So many bookstores that we have talked to are very proud of their events, rightly so. But I'm curious how those events benefit you, benefit the author? How does it work? Because somebody comes in and and there's 50 people who come in to listen to so-and-so speak. And so maybe you'll sell 50 books. I don't know. But does it benefit the author? Does it benefit the store? And does it benefit the store in terms of sales or in terms of customizing potential customers with the store? I think it's all the above. Obviously, our events are mostly free and are, we hope, you know, an asset to the community of readers around us. But if events weren't profitable, we wouldn't do them. Um, so we, it is the goal of an event. Anytime we are asked if we can host an event for an author, sometimes we're asked directly by the author. Sometimes we're asked by the publisher. The criteria for if we say yes is, do we think people will come and do we think people will buy books? And hopefully the answer is yes. <laughs> if I walked into Majors and Quinn today and you happen to be on the floor, and I said, I'm looking for something really fun or good to read. And you would say, follow me, and you would put this in my hand. What's this? Did you specifically say fun? Because (laughs) uh, it depends. (laughs) Yeah. What book would I enjoy? One fiction, one nonfiction. One fiction, one nonfiction. Okay. Well, the nonfiction, I think, particularly if you're here in Minneapolis, there is a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's been out for having its 10-year anniversary right now. And that was published by a Minneapolis publisher, Milkweed Editions. And everyone who has read that book, whether they are, you know, constantly reading nonfiction, books about the environment, books about science and indigenous wisdom, or whether it's the only one of those type of books they've read, it really changes people's outlook on the world as it did me. And a good novel. Well, if you're coming in here, yeah, as of today, I think, and you're willing to read long books, which I am only willing to do on occasion, is the new book by Nathan Hill. He wrote a novel called The Nix a few years ago. It was wonderful. And his new book is called Wellness. And it is maybe even better. And it's about sort of like, what are the myths that we tell ourselves to create a relationship? And like, what happens if those turn out to be the story a couple has been telling themselves about themselves? is wrong or incorrect. And he is just a brilliant writer. I, I think he, I think he's very sort of Dickensian in his syntax and his pacing and like his, his characterization. It's a long book, but it goes like that. Annie Metcalf, good to talk to you. Majors and Quinn, it is a good-sized bookstore, independent bookstore, around for 30 years now. You can find it on Hennepin Avenue, uptown Minneapolis. I hope many people will drop in. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Majors and Quinn. This is the first independent <laughs> bookstore that we've done that I can walk to. So, you know, yay. I'm just going to give it that little plug. Do check them out. They are wonderful. Anyway, some reminders about the folks that make this podcast possible. And then a final thought from Katie Camillo. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. 
I'm so fond of saying this, but it is so true. You can literally change somebody's life by reading aloud to them. We think all the time of reading to children, but there are people in hospitals that need to be read to. There are people in nursing homes that need to be read to. Your neighbor needs to be read to. It is a way to connect. When you read, it changes the person who's uh, reading and the person who's being read to. So read to somebody. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 